What is good, everybody? My name is Tim. This is the PH Podcast. We're on web show number nine talking about movement screen. Myself, Corey Hobbs, Eric Schmidt got into some pretty interesting discussions on how to think about movement screens, how should it be influencing your program, and then the other big part is what kind of screen should we marry ourselves to? And there's a lot of conversation back and forth about which screen is best, what's most appropriate for a strength conditioning setting. We're going to dive into all that. So if you're really excited about movement screens, we got you covered. If you are not a member of the PH curriculum, you're missing out on a lot. You're missing out not only on a pretty dialed-in curriculum, 50 modules broken up into four different courses, coaching, nutrition, training, and movement, which movement's going to be a big focal point of this actual web show. You get access to the, all the web show videos, minus all the ads, intros, every kind of transitional part of it. So you just get the meat and potatoes. You get all the transcripts, you get all the notes, suggested resources and articles. There's a lot more that you're missing out on if you're not a member of the PH curriculum. So head over to phpodcast.com, sign up for the curriculum. It's $20 a month, month to month agreement. You can go as long as much you want. Trust me, you're not going to be able to make it through all the content in a month. So you're probably going to need to stay on for a couple months, which is why we got a year subscription. So become a member today, get access to all this good. Let's get into this conversation about movement screening. I think you're going to really like this episode. If you're listening to this podcast, that probably means you were a strength coach or want to be a strength coach. And man, do I have the resource for you. It's called How to Become a Strength Coach, Periodizing Your Career in Strength Conditioning. This is your start to finish seminal resource to get you to becoming the best possible strength coach you can ever be. You can get your copy along with access to our course at phpodcast.com. This is a must-have for any strength conditioning coach or any aspiring strength conditioning coach out there. It will not only give you a step-by-step tutorial on how to become a strength coach, it will help you optimize your career every step of the way. Absolute must-have. If you like this podcast, get the book. And we got movement screens today, and I think movement screens that are kind of misunderstood a lot of people don't necessarily maybe use them right or or don't re- rely on them enough or, you know, whatever that is on the continuum there. But basically, why do we need to screen? Well, one of the things that I like to really try to focus on with training programs is it true with a larger audience. You know, the classic, if I have a sample of one, I have a lot of latitude. If I have a sample of a thousand, you have a lot less latitude. And you know, I think that's kind of where my mind always drifts to when I start to think about programming is how would this actual like manifest out into a larger group, right? So any great result or any problem, I want to start to think about not necessarily on a micro scale, but a macro scale, because if it's not going to be with a large group, it's going to be with one person potentially for an extended period of time, right? So either way, it's going to be a lot of training. And where I look at a movement screen is it creates rules or some sort of boundaries or constraints to exercises or movements or things that I want to do with a athlete or a group of athletes over an extended period of time. And when I look at those rules, I start to think, okay, well, if I was going to do this really heavy, really fast or really long in a group of maybe... 20, 30, 40, 50 people at once, multiple days a week, what would happen in terms of injury or reduced performance, right? And I, I, the injury part is probably the area that I think gets most attention when we're thinking about movement screens, the risk appraisal. Yeah. It's a diagnostic of what potentially might go wrong. And we'll talk a little bit about the research showing that it is pretty valid indicator or predictor of risk. But the other end, it gets into this dynamic of, well, if I start to think about a kind of a, a set of areas or boundaries I can create with programming, and I look at it, it's not just me programming, but typically with me and multiple other people programming with me or implementing a program, right? I haven't been in the situation where I've been the creator and facilitator exclusively pretty much my entire career, right? So I, I struggle with the notion that I'm going to write a program and then regardless if it's proofread or really well vetted or really well like thought out that it's going to go through some other medium pretty much most of the time, if not all the time. 
So going back to my college days, going back as a business owner, going back as, you know, the other end of it, I work with a lot of people remotely and they're executing on a program I'm writing, right? And there's a lot of thoughts that go into we are living through other things when it comes down to the actual application of program. And even it was just say you and I working together in a one-on-one setting and you were like, Hey, I'm going to do this program for Tim. And Tim's going to pretty much shape every single aspect of that program as we're going. And if it doesn't look right, he will redirect. And that's true until it's not. And I think human bias and agendas and everything else will have an influence on that. And my point of all this would be, I don't necessarily think that humans are capable of making really good decisions from a training perspective without bias and judgment. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the other end of it. It's regardless of the setting, if it's just me executing on a program, or if it's just multiple people executing on a program for me that I wrote, or multiple people going through a program that I wrote through someone else over an extended period of time, it's the same thing that Eventually, if we break these cardinal sins of movement and we are devoid or detached from rules, there's going to be a consequence to that. There's going to be an outcome that we don't want. And yeah, it could result in injury, which, you know, the, 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 the hardcore I'm against movement screen people will tell you it's not a great, valuable predictor of injury. Well, research would say otherwise, and experience would also agree with that. But the other end of it gets into, well, who's who's judging your reason when it comes down to exercise selection and how we know it's corresponding to performance the way we think it is? And I think as we hold, like, we should have some sort of, uh, I guess, structure to when we choose an exercise versus another and getting into these just semantics of one exercise is better than the other or some exercises are, are superior in general. That's just... It's not a great like conversation or argument where I do think it's some exercises are contraindicated for certain people or certain groups or certain dynamics, certain movement patterns in the presence of pain, asymmetry or restriction of range of motion or poor motor control are less valuable because of those, maybe one or all four of those criteria. And bottom line, a movement screen or some sort of appraisal of how you move through space and coordinating multiple joints and sequencing certain muscles at certain times and trying to integrate this big thing of joints, bones, ligaments, muscles, nervous system to unabrupted or controlled movement that we can potentially externally load or do in some way that we can stress to create some sort of outcome. Well, we need some sort of movement screen to really keep us on our keep us honest and really make us good in that regard. So that to me is what a movement screen is and marrying yourself to one versus the other or saying I work in a clinical setting. So I have a superiority to strength coach because I can diagnose things. That's great for you, but I don't care about pain other than it influences the movements that I eventually want to do. So in regards to pain, it's not something that I'm trying to fix or heal because that's outside of my scope. But what it does tell me is what I shouldn't do. And if it hurts, don't do it is a pretty simple, logical like, thought process. But how do you know it hurts until you get to the situation? And everyone will tell me, I don't believe in movement screen. Well, I'll tell you this. You tell me you have a group of 100 people that ha- don't have pain or some sort of issue. And when you wait to find out after the fact, you're automatically at a disadvantage for me who's potentially trying to find that information out first or early and then get out in front of it and try to make the appropriate modifications, whether it's a lateralization or regression to facilitate that. Or I just say collectively as a whole, everyone's going to do this list of exercises that I think would be less problematic to this small group or large group that's experienced some some sort of pain or dysfunction. So movement screen is essentially me hopefully writing a better program that holds me accountable and everyone else that's associated with that program to that same standard. The pain being your guide thing is such a simple idea, but, but maybe not as, or as readily as applied as it should be. It's like, you don't want to find out that pain after, you know, we got heavy sets of back squat today. That shouldn't be the first time we know there's pain at the bottom of that squat or, yeah. or at any point in that squat. So as we look at screens, they take the bias out, create these constraints that we can, work within as we plan out this program 
And then as we get into it, like when kind of a two parter, like when should we screen and who should we screen? Like, is there a frequency of rescreening? Can you dive into that for us? Yeah, just like we talked about with body comp, it's potentially on what time resources do you really have, and what's the what's the value you're going to get in terms of a fully comprehensive screen with a large group of people, you know. And the the argument would be, I don't need to screen. I know what my program is going to be so influenced by that anyway, which we'll get into here as we go forward. But the other end of it, it's you know, on a need to know basis, you know, one of the things I, I really think is the fundamental difference between a clinical setting or a physical therapist, athletic trainer versus strength conditioning coach is their training is built off the premise that everyone they're going to interact with is in pain. Our training is everyone that we interact with is not in pain, right? The, the assumption is if they're with us, they don't have any pain or injuries. We know that's not true, but right. the assumption is that right? That we have transcended this idea of they're going to be in pain and they always have this limiting factor and we have to wear white gloves when we train them. That's not the case. And it's why I think a lot of physical therapists and athletic trainers make really poor strength conditioning coaches. But also too, that's why I think strength conditioning coaches make really poor physical therapists and athletic trainers. Because our, our training and our pedagogy and everything else that gets to the point of being a professional, it's off the guys that we don't think they're in pain, which is something that we need to consider when we're looking at, hey, I need to appraise what to do programming-wise. If we just assume everyone's got a clean bill of health and maybe you have enough resources where you work in a situation where you have athletic trainers, sports medicine, orthopedic, looking with a fine-tooth comb for all the potential issues before it's even an issue and you can build a program off that information, or if you're in an opposite end of the spectrum with zero resources, zero support, and then you get a hundred kids on day one and you have no idea what any of their issues are, you know, going into that situation, assuming everyone's in pain is a very, really bad idea. Or Mm -hmm. in the other end of it, assuming that no one has any pain is also a really, really bad idea, which makes a paradox, if you will. It creates this dynamic of, if we don't think anyone's in pain or we think everyone's in pain, we're probably not going to get really good results. So what it does for me, and the same thing with body comp, the same thing with any physiological screen, it's on a need to know basis, right? It's the larger the group, the more I need to consolidate down what it is I can actually do and still be efficient. Because no matter what, you have a job to do to get them stronger or faster or bigger or more capable or be able to go a longer duration. And when I get to work and I start to find things out, I can start to make adjustments. What I can do on the front end, though, is I can start to tease out potentially a comprehensive screen that gives me information on a need-to-know basis, just starting off with asking an inventory before they come in, hey, does anyone have any injuries or pain that they're currently dealing with? Please let me know. You know, maybe just show of hands, or maybe we can send out a questionnaire before that first day in orientation, or maybe if we do have a five to 10 minute period of like, here's the rules and procedures in the weight room. Here's the expectations from what you want to wear. Here's the expectations of what you do when you get here. The other part is I really need to know if anyone has any pain or injuries before we start to prescribe exercises, sets, reps, tempo, intensity, and rest. And then you can start to build off of that. Okay, great. What is your injury? I have an, I have tendonitis. I have a ACL last year, I got back pain, blah, blah, blah. You start to build, okay, well, what shouldn't I do with that person, right? I could probably think about a lot of things that I shouldn't do with someone coming off an ACL who's five months removed from surgery. Mm-hmm. Or I should probably think about a lot of things someone who has really, really screwed up back, you know, L4, L5, herniation, spondies, whatever. I could start to go ahead and build an inventory of what not to do with that person. And it's going to get into this funnel of eventually I'm going to do some sort of combination of push, pull, hinge, and squat, whether it's a bilateral, unilateral, or a frontal, transverse, or sagittal, or horizontal, horizontal, vertical, or rotational vector. And then I get into this dynamic of, well, if that joint's bothering them, what is the the vector that's going to be the problem? What's going to be the plane of motion that's going to be the problem? What's going to be the range of motion that's going to be a problem? And how can I tease back? And how can I pull back to finding something that mirrors that pattern, push, pull, hinge, and squat, probably put in there some sort of single leg version like a lunge as well, but what's going to mirror that? 
and what's going to not cause pain. And I start to build a program off of that. And then maybe, just maybe, if I get the great fortune of moving up to this group of 100 to 1,000 kids that I'm just responsible for writing a program for into, I get 100 or maybe 25 or maybe even 10 people, then I can elaborate on that screen. Maybe I add in some more components of a force plate analysis, or maybe I start to add in other components of looking at a functional movement screen or table test or a more comprehensive joint analysis. But that's on a need-to-know basis. So when I'm looking about, like, well, hey, I have a group in front of me, I got to figure out information. The lowest thing of fruit is finding out if anyone has any pain or injuries that we need to account for. And then we start to build out more information based off of the context, the environment, the situation. Like if I'm working with a million dollar athlete, I, a lot more I need to know because a lot more can go wrong. Not saying that what we should, what we should be doing with a 14 year old kid and a group of a hundred is important. It's just not necessarily the right environment to go off of that. And the other part is, this is where it's beneficial to not perceive everyone's in pain. Right. If I'm looking at a million dollar athlete and they go to me saying, hey, you're a strength coach. I want you to make me more capable. They're assuming my expectations that they're in pain. Right. If they were in pain, they would probably see someone way more skilled and way more capable of getting them out of pain. Their expectations give me training that's going to make me more capable of earning money in my sport versus the other end, the 14 year old kid. You know, hopefully we're walking into it that they don't have a lot of pain or injuries. If not, yeah, then it's another problem in terms of the the sociolo- sociology aspect of it, of what did they do beforehand? Is it overuse? Is it redundancy? Is it sports specificity aspects of throwing curveballs at 12 till they basically tear the UCL? Like that kind of stuff? Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yes, it's a part of it. But, man, I don't want to walk into a weight room with a bunch of freshmen in high school and think, man, I really think everyone's going to be in pain in some way. And I'm just going to keep going and finding it until I do it. I want to train. I want to get people better. I want to get people more capable of playing their sport. And that gives them confidence. That gives them a whole different perspective on the relationship between the weight room and training and their sport. There's a lot to be valued from that. And what I find is you're too, if you're too overly cautious early, if you're too in the weeds on, oh man, this could hurt someone. I could do that. Someone like you're probably going to do them a gross disservice doesn't mean that we still don't want to gather information on a need-to-know basis. So my answer to you on that would be, let's look at the situation, the environment, the context. Let's look at the group. Let's look at the the aspect of what's the expectation. And then let's develop a need-to-know kind of criteria and build out from there. Hopefully that answers that question based off of what I'm trying to accomplish with a large potential outlets here, right? We have many listeners like I work with professional basketball players, football players, you might have listeners of working with high school kids and somewhere in the middle, we have to have some more sort of middle ground, but understand your job here. It's to make them more capable to run faster, jump higher, go further. And if you're looking at them of like, I'm just going to keep digging until I find pain and you will find it. Like if I keep poking and I keep saying that must hurt, it's going to eventually say, yes, that hurts. And if they realize that's a way to get out of something and not have to do something and push through to get better, they might actually take advantage of you. Yeah, well, I see that a lot here. You know, I'm in high school. It's like, hey, coach, this hurts. It's like, okay, well, describe it to me. Like, what kind of hurt? Oh, it's like kind of in the muscle. Like, does the joint hurt? Like, no. Does it hurt when you're moving? Like, no. All right, well, get back to work. Yeah. You know, just having those conversations. Like, like, and you you hit on something there. Is like, if you keep poking and prodding, you're gonna find pain. Like, if you go to a surgeon, he's gonna tell you you need, you need surgery. Like that that type of idea. So I think, you know, we can't go into it with these assumptions. Like mm-hmm. everyone's going to be in pain. I got to, I got to back off. And like to an extent, like you might go a slower pro- progression, but that doesn't necessarily mean you're backing way off to where they're not getting anything out of it. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and so you hit on a lot of different things. We've, we've talked about the FMS being the, the blood pressure of the, the movement screen world that you hit on force plates, you know, this Y balance test, like what screens have, you know, that validity, reliability spectrum, like, what have you seen are the best? Do you like to pair like a force deck with an FMS? What have you seen? What do you do? So what I find is the more consistency you can have between screens and finding these things, the more valid it's going to be. And what I mean by that, let's say that you find someone has a symmetry on a force plate, a bilateral force plate analysis, right? And the, the kind of 
gold standard number, the one that actually has some sort of correlation, would be this 15% asymmetry. One thing that we do is we'll do a standard counter movement jump assessment with the hands on your waist. We give them the benefit of the doubt for for two, one to two out of the three, right? Because a lot of times the environment is not perfect for testing. And you might find if there's a lot of large group going on, it's a lot of loud noises, people may look left and right. And if they have one test under 15%, the assumptions that they can demonstrate a jump without asymmetry and those other two were anomalies, right? Mm -hmm. And if they have all three, then you have to consider that might actually be a actual asymmetry. And does that tell you that they're going to be at risk for when they play their sport or when they squat or hinge? Maybe, maybe not. I do think we need more supporting information. And that's when you get into this, this other level of a functional movement screen and whatever your stake on it. And here's the thing. If you're a physical therapist out there, let's just say it, this isn't for you. It's for strength coaches. Like if you look at the history of the SFMA, when I, I'm old enough to remember when they came out the SFMA, it was only for clinically trained physical therapists, ATCs, orthopedics. It was their language was that. And then I remember being at a, a seminar with Greg Rose right after they came out with the four by four talking about SFMAs for strength coaches. And it, it basically gives a roadblock of what not to do. And you isolate, tease out these specific joint actions, which is amazing to think about because over whatever period of time, this physical therapy lens just got completely monopolized by strength conditioning coaches, right? And they changed the, the narrative so much so that it became now a area for strength coaches to tease out at a higher level, what not to do. But the origin of it comes from a lot of the, you know, dynamic neuromuscular stabilization, DNS, and looking at how we move and locomote as a baby all the way through to an upright bipedal homo sapien. And if I look at it from a baby and the transition from the ground to the floor and going through this prone supine, side-lying, side-lying elbow, half kneeling, tall kneeling, standing or squatting, standing, and then locomotion. Then you look at it from now we can reverse engineer it somehow when we get all the way back down to these primal stability patterns of this trunk stability push-up or this ASLR or active straight leg raise, we can start to tease out that's going to have some sort of, I guess, fractal relationship to being upright, a inline lunge or hurdle step, maybe a overhead squat. And in between, you have these, these stability patterns looking at a, sorry, the primal mobility patterns would be ASLR and shoulder mobility. And then the primal stability patterns would be push up and rotary stability. And we can look at this thing of like, okay, how do they move their joint, shoulder and hip? How do they stabilize their joint between the lumbar and other upper and lower quadrant? And how does that relate to movement? And we start to look at that and saying, I found asymmetry on a jump. Maybe I'm finding asymmetry on these asymmetrical screens between a hurdle step, inline lunge, shoulder mobility, ASLR, rotary stability. And then I can start to say, well, where is that asymmetry occurring? Is it happening on when I'm really in contact with the ground in a prone or supine position, which should be very stable? Or is it happening when I'm more upright? It's harder to determine where that asymmetry is happening when you're more upright. And I can start to triangulate that down to if they're asymmetrical on the ground, where it's supposed to be really stable and balanced, that is a legitimate issue. And this is what FMS would talk about of if you can't create symmetry when you're really balanced and stable, it's not going to get better when you get less stable or less balanced. Yep. And I think that's the concept that's so important here. We found asymmetry when we jumped and land for whatever reason. Maybe it was an anomaly, maybe it wasn't. And then we corroborated that information by looking at, well, what was their ability to create or develop, display symmetry when they were doing a inline lunge or hurdle step? Maybe or maybe not we find it. And then we start to work our way down to the ground and we start to look at isolated joint actions of the hip and shoulder or in a really isolated position like shoulder mobility and we find asymmetry. And I think that's when that becomes significant. It's we've displayed enough information to say that there's some sort of consistency with asymmetry. And one of the things that FMS would talk about is more asymmetry is more risk. And 
you could argue, well, that asymmetry is not a real thing. It absolutely is when we look at the risk profile of someone who does redundancy and patterns, right? We see throwers who have a lot of overuse injuries. We see golfers have a lot of overuse injuries. We see anyone, soccer, who only kicks with one leg, a lot of overuse injuries. Anything that does something redundantly is going to have some sort of impact on the biomechanics of that system and the, the way we load the tissues, the fascia, everything else. And that can potentially lead to injury. And I think that's the point. Now, the in between that, so we got this information, we find out they're asymmetrical, and let's say that you do or don't believe that. I, it doesn't really matter to me. I don't really care what you do or don't do. But you have to look at this of eventually we're going to take patterns in a constrained environment with a barbell, dumbbell, or kettlebell, or however else you load it, and we're going to load it repeatedly with external load with the emphasis of being heavy, fast, or long. And if we have this pattern that's aberrant and not what we want or out of control for whatever reason, and we start to load it over and over and over again, what is going to be the outcome of that? If it's not injury, it's going to be not the performance outcome that we want. And as a strength coach, again, I'm not trying to say don't do this because it's going to cause an injury. I do believe it potentially will cause an injury, and that's my prerogative. It doesn't really matter to me what you think about that. But what I would say is if we are trying to increase someone's bandwidth to do something faster, heavier, or longer, and we have these patterns that are not as controlled as we think we are because we either have a poor motor pattern, lack of control, or a somewhat asymmetrical joint – or a joint that doesn't move through a full range of motion without some sort of compensation, then that pattern is not going to get us what we want. And we're not going to get this correspondence to performance that we want. And then we're going to go, oh, squats don't really work to make you faster. Or the way you do it maybe doesn't. Right. Or, hey, the way that person was set up to squat didn't really correlate. Maybe they needed a better exercise or a better exercise selection. And maybe you need to do a better job of appraising what the right exercise is that based off of what they shouldn't do. And then we get into the nuance of, okay, well, how do we progress this, right? What is your starting point? Like, how do you start from a simple or slow or stable or whatever it is to progressing into movements that are more SPP or sport specific? And if you have no rationale to describe, like, what is a great foundational exercise based off potentially something that might be hurting, something that might be restricted, something that might actually be asymmetrical or something that has this compensation that we don't want, well... I don't know if we're talking about the same thing because progression should go from simple to control, simple to fat or simple to complex or complicated should go from slow to fast, stable to unstable. Well, who determines what's the baseline if we have nothing in terms of a movement diagnostic to progress from? And it might mean everyone starts off with goblet squats. It might mean everyone starts off a front squat. It might mean let's just get right to it. Let's do Olympic lifting. Or it can mean another thing entirely of, hey, everyone's going to start off with body weight split squats and we're going to build off of that. And that, to my point, is like, I'm not looking at everyone to be in pain. I just don't want to make something that's bad worse. And I want to know where to start everyone. And I want to know how to get that person to the, the outcome that they want in the most linear fashion. And it's just information. And it's corroborated, substantiated information based off of looking at a, maybe a force plate or an inventory of injury or pain, and then working through another comprehensive movement screen like the functional movement screen to determine what is the best starting point and what is the best progression off of that. Yeah, I actually wanted to clear something up because uh, you mentioned with the force plates, we have that 15% cutoff. That's the goal. And like, if anyone's not familiar with the FMS, you got score of one, two, or three on the right or left side for these patterns. And as you talk about asymmetries, it's not necessarily like a three versus a two, right? It's it's those ones we're concerned about. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Two and three, like, like two is a fine pattern, right? Mm -hmm. Like two is, you're, you're okay. So a two and three is probably not something that we can say is enough information to say this could be a problem. A one and a three is, yes. Yeah. And then a zero and a three definitely is. Right. And not all screens are weighted the same. Mm -hmm. You know, we look at the shoulder mobility and active straight leg raise as the top of the pyramid in terms of that because it looks at isolated action of the hip and shoulder in a very either stable or isolated environment. And if we develop a one, three or zero, three asymmetry, then that's a problem. Right. Yeah, I just want to clear that up because I don't want anyone out there who's like anti-FMS, give, give them a little ammo, like two or three, it's asymmetry, you know, you know that whole whole conversation. Yeah. Like, we got to use this tool for what it is and the way it's intended to make sure we're getting the most out of it. And, and again, I wanted to hit on... Point of that, but to like, I want to like elaborate on the 
context is everything. Like if you've got mm-hmm. a private practice and you're working with 10 people, they're paying you a thousand dollars a session and you have something that's way more robust than a functional movement screen. Great. I'm good for you. Like you should, yeah. you should go mm-hmm. a little bit more in depth, but if you're like the most of us that it doesn't pay a whole lot and we got to figure out a way to re- have a largest reach as possible. We're talking hundreds, if not thousands of people trying to train simultaneously you're going to need a screen that you could repeat repeat over and over again and being accurate over a large number of people with a large number of people administering it. And to date, there's not really much screens that can hold a candle to a functional movement screen in terms of iterator reliability and overall reliability. Like bottom line, bar none, there's nothing else out there for a strength conditioning coach that we can look at over a large group over a long period of time with multiple people administering that test that holds a candle to functional movement screen. So it's like context. Yeah. Like I get it. Like you have five people you work with and they pay you thousands of dollars. Like you should be doing a little bit more than the FMS. Like in my opinion. Yeah. But the rest of us normal, we have a lot of things that we need to consider. And FMS is pretty solid for us to make a better decision with our training on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. And along the lines of FMS being pretty solid, what about the approach? Like, I'm pretty sure Coach Boyle does this. Of like, I don't need a screen because I build my training around the FMS. What would, where do you stand on that matter? You know, I, I kind of put that in the, I like it. I do agree with it. However, I put that in the camp of, I think that kind of assumes everyone's in pain. You see that with Coach Boyle's, you know, overall approach. You know, the, mm-hmm. the vertical knee when you split squat or the, you know, never bilateral loading, like with the barbell for squat pattern. I, I kind of see that play out there. And I think that's it's not dangerous per se, but I think it's definitely ultra too conservative of you just assume everyone's going to be below a 14 or have asymmetries on an asymmetrical pattern that you potentially are missing a opportunity to develop your athletes in a more linear or faster manner. If I can get like, I have this like, I know the outcome. I know the things that's going to get me to where I want to go in the most linear and, and rapid fashion possible. I don't want to water that down or dilute that in any way. So if I know an exercise is going to be superior to another in terms of getting to some, getting some outcome, I want to get to that as quickly as possible. And if I assume that everyone has a low score, which I think is the default when you base your programming off of that, like low, low, below 14 and asymmetries, I think that limits the rate and the, I think the effect that you could possibly have. And again, like, you know, don't worry about my problems in mathematics. I can assure you mine are much greater. Albert Einstein, like Mike Boyle's got a lot different environment than we do. Like he's got thousands and thousands of athletes and he has hundreds and hundreds of coaches and it's, out of necessity that the law of averages for him is a lot different than the law of averages for you and I, and probably the majority of the people listening to this. And he has an obligation and a moral responsibility to, to make, take that approach. However, on our end, if we can get a little bit more nuanced, if we can get a little bit more specific and we get a little bit more traction, you know, maybe we can kind of close the gap for someone who has as much pedigree and experience. And to be honest too, like, you know, the rest of us mortals aren't going to give, be given the benefit of the doubt. We're always going to have some sort of blowback when we try to do what's best for our clients and athletes of, hey, I think we need to progress this. I found these screens that were potentially red flags, and I want to start to be really conscientious of not making something worse. In a lot of worlds, they could probably just say, I don't really want to do that, and I can find someone else who doesn't account for that, and they can go somewhere else. And you know, when we're looking at a movement screen, we talked about this with Rob with the structural balance assessment, like, you know, we want to get an inventory of things that we need to know to make better decisions. But at the end of the day, like we have to sell ourselves, we have to sell our product, we have to sell our program. And if people feel like either this is too restrictive or too conservative or not really built for them to get where they want to get as fast as possible, they're probably going to go to somewhere else who wants to do that. So you have to find some sort of medium here. And the experience, the pedigree, the, the multiple national championships and, and Major League Baseball World Series, like that gives you a lot of latitude. And the rest of us mortals, like, you know, we probably need to be, okay, like the assumption is not in pain. I'm going to get this person doing the program that they feel is going to get them the best results. 
And I kind of have to figure out and pick my battles about what's the best solution here. And to be honest for me too, like, I think that's why I expanded myself so much of looking at different ways to load tissues between FRC, looking at different methods and techniques, looking at different specialty bars and different protocols. Like, oh, you don't believe me that I can make you bigger and stronger without squat, bench, and deadlift? Like, give me a chance. I can destroy all of your tissues without putting you in a compromised position. And trust me, you will believe me when we're done with the first session. And like, I, I think it's made me better to like find that. And not, I'm not discouraged by Mike and that approach. In fact, I'm, I'm empowered to be honest. Like, and I hope one day to have that much authority over that environment to be able to say, your, your voice of reason is not nearly as close as mine because I have experience, I have knowledge, and I know the burden of, I have the burden of knowledge, you know, that this could be problematic if I let you do this. We just, us mortals need to keep working hard, you know? Yeah. Well, we'll just keep grinding, chop wood, carry water, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no doubt. All right. We got Eric Schmidt coming up in the interview and I'm looking at his notes here and he is absolutely bringing the heat. Like no doubt about it. This is going to be a good one. Yeah. In fuego. He's going to be great, man. It's going to be awesome. All right, Corey, really appreciate this, man. I hope, hope I didn't piss people off with the FMS, man. Just do it. I don't care. Like, yeah. don't do what it. Do don't mean? do it. What do you mean? Yeah, it doesn't matter. And maybe I'm happy I pissed you off. I'm polarizing topic, man. Shock, shocking, shock value through the roof yeah. here. Just make the people <laughs> angry and they'll... Listen. Yeah, exactly. That's it. That's the secret to a great podcast, man. Just keep them angry. Keep them angry. All right, buddy. Thanks, Tim. See ya. If you like what we're talking about here on this podcast, you're definitely going to love this next thing. It's called Strength Deficit, your seminal resource to developing eccentric versus concentric ability with your athletes. We have a book, we have courses, we have everything you need to be able to implement, understand, and be the best strength deficit practitioner you could possibly be. You can get all of these resources at phpodcast.com and you'll become the best, and I mean this, the best possible strength coach in your setting. All right, we got my guy, Eric Schmidt. Today, we're going to be talking about movement screens. Eric has already gave me a heads up. He doesn't really believe in this, so it's going to be fun. I'm excited. <laughs> I love it. Not in a traditional sense, and Eric's going to obviously unpack that, but let's go into it, man. Define what a movement screen is to you, and then we'll keep unpacking from there. Yeah. Um, yeah. First of all, I'm a believer and then a non-believer, and then I'm back to a believer right now for the movement screen. I think movement screens are great, man. They're, they're barriers to adaptation, you know, where I try to identify the barriers to the adaptation. And there's a lot of different ways to do that. If you actually look at my history on the internet, I actually did write an article about this, probably the only article I think that exists out there on the internet that I've written, you know, back in like 2017 or something like that about movement screens. So really what we're just trying to do is, is kind of identify, you know, where the barriers are for, for the athletes or clients that we work with to help, you know, sort of inform our, our program design and make sure that we're, you know, starting to, to load and train people in the safest way possible. So that's what I think about when I think about a movement screen. There's a lot of different ways to do that. So, I mean, unpacking that just, just a little bit more. So barriers, or as you kind of described it as this like entry point into your programming, you know, now that you've, since you've written that article and you've kind of come full circle with a lot more practical and life experience, you know, are, are you looking at barriers or potentially the entry point to a program differently now than when you wrote that article back in 2017? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Because there's, there's a, you know, movement's really complex. You know, I kind of, I kind of got into it at that point, you know, in, in the article, but movement is really complex and we really try to break it down in these like, these really simple ways, you know, and there's a lot of issues with doing so because what we realize is that, you know, it's, it, it changes so frequently our communication of like strategy and how we have athletes execute various movements is going to influence things quite a bit. You know, the way that we load certain movements will also change the way that athletes kind of coordinate things so we can actually improve certain patterns by 
loading in different ways and things like this. So, you know, it's, I still think there's some value in being able to, to quantify movement in some fashion. And I think that depending on your context, like the situation that you're in, I still find a lot of value. Like if I'm in a college setting, working with a big staff, I'm probably still doing something a little more formal, but we got to realize that these screens are not going to predict injury. They're probably going to, we're going to see different results on different days based on, you know, different factors like tone and, you know, just athletes motivation on the day and things like this. There's going to be a lot of different variables that influence these patterns. So it just depends on the context that you're in and how these screens can kind of kind of help you. I, I know I, I touched on this early on or in the article too, but like early in my career, I think it was really valuable. Like I think of the Springfield days where we did, I can't remember how many FMS, you know, FMSs we did with athletes, but we FMSed everybody, you know, this is like 2011 and it, it helped train my eyes so, so much because it just took this, like, I guess, seemingly complex movement patterns. And it just sort of like helped me focus on just a few different things in that scoring criteria, which just trained my eye. And I find, I found a lot of value. Now I find a lot of value in that experience of like all those reps of just, constraining this complex movement into like these very simple objective like scoring criteria even though again i know that this gets kind of shit on quite a bit you know for for that reason and i can understand that too so it just depends on the context you're in i i don't do as much as like we don't do this anymore but you know we don't do anything really formal like this it's it's very specific to to you know the athlete but i just think that there's still a lot of value in these screens for sure well, I mean, there's, I guess there's something I really want to unpack here. And I, I may be speculating here, but Springfield College, Division three school, a lot of maybe potentially inexperienced coaches, knowledgeable, but inexperienced. Mm. Yep. UCLA, UCSB, and now where you're currently at. You mentioned that, you know, you don't really use this as much. You know, where you're currently at, a lot more a lot more experience, a lot more quote unquote pedigree, a lot more knowledge. Do you think that a, a more standardized screen like the FMS is a much more applicable thing in a environment with a lot less certainty of skill or knowledge versus where you're at now? What's you can rely on someone's intuition and knowledge because it's a lot more vetted. Or is that like the wrong way to think about utilizing a standardized screen in general? It should be this, hey, everybody, like from where you're at now, all the way down to a division three school with a lot of inexperienced coaches and a lot of athletes, you know, what, what is the thought process in terms of like, ah, it's not really something we utilize on a daily here, but in these other places is really incredibly important. Is it the knowledge and skill set gives you a lot more latitude or is it, hey, I yeah. really need to standardize this and have a more common language across all platforms? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it, it, it just comes down to what you're using the screen for, because I think in a lot of ways, like a, a really, a really solid, like progression, regression, you know, system within like different loading patterns is probably going to solve most of your problems as a strength coach, you know, like appropriately putting somebody into the right placement within a sequence of like a progression, whether that's how much you're loading them, the way that you're loading them and how you're going to progress that over time can probably solve a lot of your problems. And I think that comes with like experience, you know, we, we it's important to, to understand that that's like a critical part of our job. But I think the mismanagement of these, uh, of an athlete's, not only their position within a, a progression, but also like the volume and intensity that they're exposed to over time is, is critical. And if we mess that up, I think it, it, it leads to a lot of issues. And some of those issues are, the athlete's ability uh, to move within those patterns. And so that can be certainly identified with the screen, but then every session that you take an athlete through within the weight room is a screen. You know, there are going to be changes in the surrounding environment that the athlete is going to have to deal with in the sport that they're going to present to when they train with us. And so there are going to be changes that you can pick up if you have a keen coaching eye, which again, I think comes with reps certainly, but also think it comes with just having a really good understanding of these basic principles and paying attention rep to rep, set to set of how these athletes execute things, you know, but then I do think about 
the value in other ways that these screens do provide. And again, I just, I, I peeked at this article. I haven't looked at it for a long time, but I peeked at this article and I do still think that there's a lot of value in, in showing athletes that movement matters, you know, like being really like, and there's just something, maybe something there's a, there's a level of like seriousness that, that, that an athlete will take if you actually like screen and score something, you know, there's just, it's just, it's kind of natural. So I do think that there's value in that. I do think there's value in creating communication among staff. You know, there's, there's maybe some deeper reasons here that are less to do with what the screen is actually like helping you with on the training side of things. But, but, you know, I do certainly think that it's, it's probably going to be a little more valuable in, in, in different settings that I'm in right now. It's probably going to be a little bit more valuable in, you know, if I'm a younger coach for sure, because otherwise you could, you can start to pick things up with just the experience and having a, a better way of, of managing these like exercise progressions, regressions, and dealing with sort of these set prescriptions of volume, intensity, and frequency and all those things over time. You know, this brings up a really interesting kind of conversation I had with Will about body composition and his setting. And I was like, how does this influence your programming? How does this influence your nutritional interventions or supplementation interventions? And he's like, it really doesn't. I mostly talk about you know lifestyle and habits. I'm going to go get a meal with them and find out their, their, the cultural reasons, the emotional reasons, the sociology reasons to eat certain foods at certain times, at certain amounts. And I was like, all well and good, but how are you quantifying the impact from this more, I guess, personalized experience, right? There's nothing objective about it. And it's like, all right, so apples to apples, I get a very technical thing and I start to talk about calories. I start to talk about macronutrients and he's talking about different lifestyle habits and whatnot. And at the end of a certain period, like who's better, right? Mm -hmm. We live in the results-based industry. And I think the same thing I'm kind of hearing from you right now is you've not transcended the need to do a movement screen, but you've evolved and you have a lot more potential like resources you can lean in on that can really support overall stuff. But I guess the point being is the same question to you is, Hey, I'm going to use my understanding of what is good and bad over a long period of my career and, and having someone validated from having a lot of success in my career. How were you quantifying that? And that is, I think, the really heart of hopefully this whole thing, because there's going to be a lot of young coaches listening to this going, all right, maybe a movement screen is not that beneficial, or maybe it's not that helpful. Yeah. Maybe doing yeah. a body comp is not that helpful. But truth is, is, you and I, Will, and everyone else is on this, who's been hosting this podcast, you know, we have to probably get to something of objectivity really matters, and we can over rely on our subjective appraisal of like, you know, I'm doing a good job. So yeah. I guess my question to you is, do you have anything aside from a functional movement screen that you currently use about a more objective evaluation of what you're doing? And if not, why? Yeah. Gosh, great, great question. Yeah, I think so. I think there's, there's a lot of different objective pieces that go into sort of the evaluation and how we appraise things over time with athletes that, that might be, I guess, related to a, a movement screen, because really a movement screen, when we talk about, like, that's why I kind of like define it in a very broad way as like a barrier to adaptation, because there's other components than just pure like motor control that are going to be barriers to adaptation, you know? And so when, when I think of like objectifying things over time, and looking at my role currently in the context of like a high performance team, you know, there's a lot of different things that I can, that we can, we can quantify that are going to be barriers, you know? So I think looking at more like some of the kinetic pieces to that the athletes need to manage and realizing that the underpreparedness of their, you know, of their nervous system, of their muscular system is, is a huge problem, you know, depending on, on the athlete. And so being able to quantify those kind of strengths. So basically, if we think about that, like, you know, movement is required for everything, right? So in some ways, like, regardless of what we're objectifying here, when I say like, you know, strengths, those are components that are very important in their ability to manage the external environment that they're going to deal with in the sport. So being able to quantify 
these strengths and breaking these strengths down in different ways is sort of like, I think, one of my main roles as a performance coach. And when I say these strengths, there's different forms of expression of strength, right? So we have this absolute, we have the speed, we have the reactive components, you know, and those are all dependent on sort of how the joints move, how the, how the, you know, how our limbs can, can navigate space and all that stuff. So like those are all components of that. But ultimately, like if somebody lacks preparation in those areas, it's going to feed into how they move. It's going to feed into how they manage the ground reaction forces, how they manage fatigue, all that stuff. So when I think about like, I guess the pure movement screen side of things, it's maybe, that's maybe less of, of what I think is, is really important because of all these variables of how complex movement is and all this stuff. And maybe now I'm feeding more into, okay, what is the level of preparation of these specific strengths and their ability to take all this sort of like this, this, this movement variability and funnel it into these expressions and do they have the ability to do so? And if we can quantify those with simple things, right? So you can do one to three rep maxes to, to quantify this absolute strength. You can do IMTPs to quantify this absolute strength. You can do something on the leg press that we have now to quantify this absolute strength. And you can monitor that over time and we could see how that is changing. The same can be said for some of the speed strength elements, which is really rate of force development, right? And and you can quantify that in different ways and you can appraise that and, and then, you know, see what see what that is in comparison to their peers and then progress that over time reactive strengths, another key piece, you know, so all these things can be like, again, we can, we can definitely appraise these things and realize that they are, they're all based on movement, right? I mean, it's, it's, they're all expressions that are required for joints to get into these positions for their nervous system to funnel, you know, all this output into these directions. And, and so I think that can be, that can be viewed over time. And I think that's, that's maybe my current thinking. And I know that gets us off a little bit of this movement screen path, but it's it's maybe the things that I think are maybe really important right now to be objectifying. And then just when you look at your program and you appraise just what their abilities are in, in many different patterns, you know, that can be its own little thing, but it isn't maybe as objective, I guess, as, as it's like sitting down and scoring somebody on a movement screen. Yeah. You know, you know, it's also really interesting is where you're currently at and you have, you're sandwiched in between, the most extreme versions of whatever we'll see in our industry, right? So on the front end, you have some of the best orthopedics, physical therapists, ATCs in the world, kind of vetting all the stuff that we're talking about before you even talk to them or even have any access to them. And then in the back end, it's easily one of the most scrutinized things in the entire world, right? Better, more so than maybe potentially financial markets of people are going to look at every single aspect and variable of performance on the court. So you have now the ultimate input and the ultimate output of what is happening, right? Like mm-hmm. from almost like overly scrutinized level, right? You're going to get more information than you'll ever need to know from the best orthopedics, PTs, ATCs in the world. You're going to get more information than you'll ever need in terms of like analytics, sports science, and then you're kind of in the middle, which you, you kind of got into a couple of talking points between like, maybe it's a force plate analysis, maybe yeah. it's, not, it's yeah. a pull, maybe it's a, just looking at EMG or force or output on a leg press. So how now in terms of like your shaping of this, and you mentioned within the notes we talked about of like this functional strength, like, is that the thought process is like, I got a, I got a vector from this front end work of a PTOT or ATC orthopedic of what I can do. And then it's about doing that as much as humanly possible. And that's where the movement appraisal really comes into is what is their functional capacity based off the movements they can do? Is that the the right logic here? Is that the way you want to go with this? Yeah, I think so. Because I think, again, I think like training is training is the protective piece of all this, right? We're really just trying to like, look at where somebody might fall within this kind of like, you know, I think of like a functional movement screen is going to hopefully give you an indication of how somebody sequences and manages like these, these common patterns that we're going to load. And the loading piece is the important piece over time, because that's what's ultimately going to build the infrastructure for the athletes to manage the environments that they're going to go out and, 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 you know, and, and work in. Right. So training to me is like, like the, the other piece I would add is like this, these progressions over time and somebody's ability to improve within the exercises of their menu. That's a, that's 
objective. Like that's the objective. If somebody comes in and I and, and we're taking them into say we, we believe that a one leg squat is a single leg squat is a really great a, a really great exercise for them to load. And we're gonna put them on this very basic, you know, linear progression of just hey, they're gonna go three by eight and we're gonna ride this thing out until they started stop adapting and they start with body weight and then they end with, you know, they they start to kind of slow down three, four months from now when they're able to do like 50 pounds of external load, like to me, like that is as objective as, as you can get right there, you know, because it's like that process doesn't occur unless there's internal changes in their system and their ability to adapt and manage. And, and when you're able to just progress people in these patterns, and I say that with like the, the big, big caveat of how they do this is incredibly important. And so like, you're not you're not just pushing people beyond their actual abilities. You know, you have to allow adaptation to occur and this thing takes a long time, but I think that's super, super important. You know, when you work with athletes for years and you see somebody who couldn't do a pull-up and all of a sudden three years from now, they're doing 50 pounds, you know, loaded pull-ups. It's like, I mean, how much better, you know, that to me is like, there's a lot of value in that. So I think it's, it's just having a good wide menu being strategic and how you progress people through those menus and just realizing that I think that the importance is through the training. And so hopefully you're able to be, you're hopefully, hopefully able to, to stay on top of your training, you know, with, with your stay on top of all the details of the training with the athletes over time. And I think that is a, is a great way to, again, appraise this improvement. You know, it's amazing because essentially what you just described to me is you're allowed to focus on the things that you're really skilled at and really proficient at. And in a lot of ways, when you're at these other places, you have to diversify your portfolio and you don't yeah. really like recognize at the time, like, cause it's interesting and it's compelling and it's fun. It expands your horizons, but you possibly might dilute what you could potentially offer an athlete when you have to wear so many different hats of the front yeah, end yeah. screen or appraisal movement capacity or potential, and then look at the back end in terms of just tracking or athlete management. And then you go, oh, wow, by the way, I got to whip together a program that's going to make this person more robust in terms of force or power or velocity or capacity or whatever other endeavor you want to develop, which is ironic because it's that's what essentially you're most trained for and skilled for. And, <laughs> yeah. you know, and I, I think that is the great like Achilles heel of strength and conditioning is we always will volunteer, you know, where the, you know, the hunger games, I volunteer myself for every single aspect in the athletic department, you know, where the Katniss Everdeen's of all athletic departments and like these non-power five, these, these like non-professional sports, these division three high school, et cetera. Like we always will volunteer ourselves for everything at the expense of what we're probably most valuable for right and mm -hmm. you know that's the part that is like you know just making me think personally about as i became a business owner how i needed to become more you know, astute with all these other areas as i moved up and transcended in football yeah, you know, yeah. i, I kind of got away from the the programming aspect and it's making me now rethink personally about the you know the the joke was in college football like imagine if we can just get to wisconsin and we just ran the ball you just get it bigger and stronger and you can get rid of all the other stuff, you know, essentially that like perfect yeah. utopian environment of, okay, now you have your opportunity. Do you find that like, yeah. do, you, do you ever have the itch? Like, and when I brought this topic up to you of like, Hey, let's talk movement screen. Did you ever like have the itch of like, Oh wow. Like I'm, I'm losing sight of biomechanics or I'm losing sight of this. Or is it like, Hey, I've got blinders on. I got a job to do. I know what my role is and I'm fired up about that. Where are you at personally with this like information? Yeah, man. I, I definitely, it's definitely a space that I feel I always want to, to improve. And I, I think about like the current environment I'm in provides me a lot for probably like the lower extremity, but I think of like, there's areas that I don't think about as much anymore that I used to think about when I worked in like baseball, water polo, those types of sports, swimming, like, you know, but I do think that like your environment's always going to provide you. Like, I still feel like there's, there's, there's limitations in people's abilities to move and that, that now I have a better ability to maybe deep dive on and say like, okay, what is the constraint within this? You know, because like 
I, I typically like think about things and this is probably very flawed, but I typically think about like, I have this ideal program in my mind that an athlete is going to do. And if they cannot do this, which by the way, like 99.9% .9 of athletes will never be able to do this, then it's like you kind of work, I work backwards from like, what's their limitation to this ability to like do these things. So like, I would love if every athlete could front squat, you know, like I would love and, and front squat a lot of weight, you know, I would love if every athlete could do a single leg squat with 50% of their body weight, I would love if every athlete could trap bar deadlift two times their body weight, I would love if every athlete, you know, like, you kind of go through this, like, program of and, and, and like where these athletes like you would love for them to be. And then you just kind of work backwards from that. And I do think there's a lot of exposure to to limitations there that you can sort of segue into looking towards deeper, like levels of biomechanics and like really breaking down all the way to the joint level, you know, like, so I do think there is, there is an ability for me in this environment to do that. I just have less influence on those types of constraints now, you know, like, I think if I were to go into a different space, it would be like, okay, now I'm responsible for actually cleaning up some of these constraints within that versus now collaborating on those constraints and saying like, you know, there's a limitation in this left ankle, you know, and, and there's some things that we're going to need to do to actually like help this athlete continue to succeed down these progressions and be able to load this thing appropriately and help them distribute force across that left side better, you know, and it's, it's, but we've identified it's the ankle, you know, like that's a huge piece. So now it's like, well, how do we go get that, that workspace and that ankle? Well, there's going to be specific tactics that you're going to use at the, at the joint level potentially, and then integrate that into the motor control level. Again, these are things that are sort of outside my current like day to day, but those need to now be integrated into the training piece where we build the fitness qualities on top of that. So I guess there's still like, I do think there's still the, there, like I still am able to scratch that itch in some ways. I'm just less responsible for the, for like shoring up those, those types of constraints at this point. You know, and I think it brings up a really interesting point. I think so many coaches get hung up on, you shouldn't do an exercise, like for instance, Olympic lifting, or you shouldn't do a like a, a variation of an exercise, like back squat over front squat. There's there's a conversation always around what not to do, but the better question probably be is why can't we do it? Yeah, and, yes, yes, and not saying yeah. you have to do it, right? Like I, I I don't think it's a great idea to do Olympic lifting with someone who's never touched a weight before as a professional athlete. The the risk right. reward and then the actual like. The, the process of getting better at it, but it does bring up a really interesting question of, well, why can't they do it? I mean, they're the best right. athletes in the world. They're extremely skilled. They're probably very, very strong visual and kinesthetic learners. If you just show them someone doing it correctly, chances are they probably can do it pretty good precision and skill, but is that could actually be worth the time to do it? Yep. And I think, I think as we're looking through a movement and ability skill set, like you're like, all right, well, that, in terms of power and expression and rate of force development and all that good stuff about Olympic lifting, if that is like, hey, catching a bar in your shoulders or overhead is the extreme range of, a, hey, they need to transcend vertical vector, be able to move a barbell in a fixed plane all the way through these like certain positions of shoulder or overhead, and they can't do that, you start to extrapolate mm -hmm. why. Or the other example would be like a, a full range of motion split squat or squat. And you go, okay, mm -hmm. well, if they can't push your hamstring down to the calf, with keeping their foot and glued to the ground. Why? Like, and then you start to go, okay, do they have tendinopathies? Do they have all these other variables? Like, okay, great. I just, I know what I potentially could do, but now I start to work down on what they can do. And from that perspective, I think it's healthier. And I think it's much more conducive yeah. to like, well, you're not doing a lesson program. You're just doing the more appropriate program. Yeah. So with that, with that being said though, it's, you know, let's talk about how you're getting information from maybe sports medicine and going to you and they go, okay, like, is it a very, don't do this and you have to figure out what to do? Or is it a like, Hey, they have these issues and you have to extrapolate out what is the best progression off of that? Like, what is the, the vector here from getting a baseline information from either sports medicine or yourself? Yeah, that's a great question. There's a, there's a pretty in-depth assessment that takes place on the front end that helps guide us into different different places within the program. And so I think like it, it kind of starts with really having, you know, our ducks in a row in terms of like as a as a performance department, as a performance staff, as like an individual who's going to train athletes, like 
there's a there needs to be an understanding of like the concurrent program that athletes are going to enter into. So there's like, you know, again, I do think I come from the Boyle lineage, so it's very like basic progressive regressive system for these common patterns. I do think that's a huge piece, and and we just call that our trainable menu. So like our like everybody, everybody that works here in the sports medicine team is going to know that like the performance department has a trainable menu for each athlete that are going, you know, they're going to enter into these very basic progressive, regressive patterns, you know, and then it's like, there's maybe a guidance and direction of like where they should enter potentially, you know, and I think it gets into a little bit of complexity because we have options that like we have certain machine options that really don't require a ton of like, Con, like constraints are taken into consideration if somebody has lack of like joints joint workspace or if they have lack of motor control in certain ways we can bypass some of that by throwing them onto these onto these uh, machines so there is some nuance to this but ultimately i think it's a guidance into like where these these athletes should end up within this menu of of of, of training and ultimately like what would be a good option for them to to kind of like uh help protect them and help really challenge their constraints in a way that hopefully we can adapt and then build some protection. So that's sort of what it looks like. I know that maybe is a little bit general, but ultimately it's like, you know, if we're talking like specifics, Hey, this athlete lacks ankle dorsiflexion here, you know, this athlete also lacks, uh, you know, hip IR here. This athlete also has an injury history on this side. There may be some chondral issues at the knee. There may be this, there may be that. I think this is a great sort of like there's layers to the to the direction but there's like hey i think a a a good like split squat rear foot elevated split squat pattern would be a very good pattern to enter into and then progress them through and then help build up towards our our kind of our standards of like of execution and performance on those particular things so there's like a little more of a specific guidance towards that and again this is something that there's there's layers to that that's not just like a a movement assessment but there's layers to like deeper deeper levels of assessment that come into like certain we'll assess the capacity at joints we'll assess the injury history at depth like all those things we'll assess their current training and things that they may feel and experience when they're performing and that'll be taken into consideration but it still all funnels back to a basic program and i think that's the key it all funnels back the basic program with basic sets and rep prescriptions on basic patterns that are, you know, kind of stood the test of time. And it's, there's just has to be a really intelligent kind of like funneling process. And then a really intelligent progression of how you push those things up over time. Yeah. And, and I mean, what you just described to me would be like bookends of, you know, what you want to look for, or you're trying to find out what the problems would be, you know, what a program in theory should be and then you're just trying to find the best solution in between which is exactly. training you know, yeah, real world so, I, yeah i kind of laugh because i'm just like i guess like i don't know what else there I, I guess this is the most logical way to think about it but hopefully i'm sure there's holes but really it just yeah it's 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 just training it's just proper hopefully <laughs> safe and, and and effective training you know what i mean yeah. just so do more do more good than harm kind of thing <laughs> you know that's more good. pretty simple so ah man eric thank you so much man this was uh this was an awesome conversation i really appreciate you taking the time and we'll see you here next month man sounds good as always appreciate it so a lot to unpack from this episode i want to just get across the idea of scope and looking at a strength conditioning coach and what we need to do in terms of a movement screen it should be a great proxy for us to determine good movement to establish a great strength conditioning program that's it Right, we're not trying to diagnose or trying to create an intervention that gets someone out of pain. We're just trying to make someone run faster, jump higher, or throw something further, or move at a longer duration more efficiently. And a movement screen is a big part of that. It allows us to write programs more effectively and tells us what not to do as well as what to do. So I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. If you like what we're talking about, again, get on the PH curriculum to see all of the facets of this. I actually included a movement screen sheet so you guys can track along. You can see what I use myself. Just an unbelievable resource. Come a member today, phpodcast.com.